Welcome to Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere with your host, Chris Parker. And welcome back to Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere. This is Chris Parker, and I am speaking with Arnaud Batamana, who is a colleague from the Open EXO community. So this is part of the Exponential Organization series. And Arnaud and I have been in a number of conversations recently about how to create much more value in the world with exponential thinking. And we're certainly going to get into that. What I love about Arnout is he's a completely different animal than I am, meaning he's a sales expert, a sales machine. And I am very jealous sometimes of his superpower. So Arnout, thank you so much for joining. Can you share with us what is it that you do and why are you doing what you do? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for uh, having me in, in the call after several interesting um, conversations we've had in the, over the past uh, month uh, during the OpenEXO sessions. It was uh, really nice to, to meet you uh, there. Um, yeah, what it is, what, what, what I do, ooh, um, <coughs> the, the short version of it <laughs> is that um, I really like to help uh, companies uh, achieve uh, new uh, business models, uh, new go-to-market uh, strategies by applying the latest in, in technology. I think, in short, uh, that is uh, that is what I do. Um, and that sounds relatively easy, uh, but the, the, the difficult factor is so much not often really the technology in itself, even though it is the innovative technology I like to work with, but it's much more the transformation, the path to get there, uh, which is sometimes the uh, more complicating uh, factor, but yeah, that's where we are to uh, to help them uh, with. And yes, um, I definitely like the the, the sales uh, part, which I've learned, which is a separate story, which I'll tell you once over a beer how I got into sales in the first place, because I did not start as a salesperson. And I actually, if people would have asked me 20 years ago, are you going to be a salesperson? My answer would definitely have been, oh, no, never. Uh, but it turned out uh, that actually, um, yeah, it is something I really like. Uh, but I also don't do it like what I call the shoe sales uh, person. Uh, I really try to deliver value. And um, I like to talk about innovative things and technology and what people can do with it. And then basically my enthusiasm usually does the rest. Arnott, you can't throw out that you have an amazing story an origin story that we'll talk about later. I have to ask, how did you get into sales? And let's have our oh, virtual beer right now and hear the story. <laughs> well, how I got into sales uh, actually was that um, at that point, I didn't know who was sitting on my table, but I was with my manager in uh, Toronto um, when uh, I was working there for Visual Banker. Um, which was the first mobile banking platform in the world in the mid 90s. So most people didn't even have a mobile phone in the Netherlands and we were building a mobile banking platform, which was awesomely cool, I think. Uh, at that time, I was still an architect, um, somebody working what you would nowadays call on the UX side. So I was very much about the interaction with uh, both the, uh, the internal uh, employees of the company because it was not just mobile banking um, for, the for, the, for the end clients, but also a CRM uh, system for uh, tellers in the bank. So people, people that work in the bank uh, itself. Um, 
and then having a dinner with my boss and um yeah there was somebody else on the on the dinner table and yeah we had a very pleasant dinner and during the dinner this gentleman um who was underdressed compared to my boss so that's why i never anticipated that he could actually be much higher ranking in the organization which turned out it was um so then he asked me like what i thought about sales and and i told him about oh those are the people that, that sell you this second hand car and two weeks later it breaks down and then oh we never knew anything about this um and so yeah not extra exactly a very positive opinion about sales and the next morning uh, we had a very pleasant dinner so we went home and next morning went in the office and then my manager asked me like hey did you know who that person was and then i said no i said very nice uh, nice person but uh, yeah i have no idea well, then he said, well, he was not my boss, also not his boss, and also not that boss, but the boss of him. So I was counting up, and then, oh, and he was reporting directly into Lou Gerstner, um, who was at the time the CEO of IBM, for big comp uh, company. So I phoned up my wife and said, well, I will probably be in the next aircraft because I'm probably fired, <laughs> because I uh, <laughs> insulted um, a very high-ranking uh, <laughs> Uh, official uh, from our uh, our company but actually i did get a phone call from him but just saying that i needed to pack my bags and go to um uh, to scotland to follow a uh, a sales training i was put on a sales training where uh, all only the let's say client directors so those people within ibm that run the, the major accounts and i was sent to that nice little castle and it's the, the ibm way of doing stuff and um, so and ever since I've yeah, been more in the business development uh, and, and sales and channel kind of uh, side of uh, things because I still love the technology and I keep that going. But I've learned that actually um, making technology happen only works if you are able to explain what technology does to non-technical people because mostly the non-technical people have the budget. So if you're not capable of explaining what something does, um, you will probably lose some very nice technologies. And that's one of the things I saw happening. And um, yeah, and that's also um, why this happened, because he came to that table um, because most of my sales colleagues invited me as a kind of pre-sales role at clients. And I was working as an, as an architect in R&D. So the management had like, why do you fly in somebody working from Toronto um, who is actually in R&D and mostly R&D people are not the people you put in front of a client and um, they actually yeah but he definitely uh, is capable of explaining what it actually does so that is um, how that uh, started but when I uh, heard that in that morning I literally phoned my wife because I, I thought oh I will be fired <laughs> oops and that um, looking at your LinkedIn that happened well, before 2000, so this this goes back 20 years ago, and then and then yeah, and then some of the credentials you've got, you know, you've got Oracle, Atos, um, um, Usoft, HP, um, OutSystem, you know, so you have worked with the top solution providers literally in the world. So I'm curious in your experience of being not only a, a, a salesperson, but also based on your nature, content owner, you know, yeah. what have you learned about 
I guess, technology sales or solution sales in that, in those 20 years? Like what, what are the main themes that are um, maybe beneficial for people who are selling um, complex solutions themselves out there in, in, in the audience? Um, yeah, a couple of things actually. Um, one of the key things is, at least for, for, for me, uh, is that you need to like what you're doing. You need to believe in the technology you are selling. Um, and that sounds all that easy, but there are also salespeople sell products which they actually already know is like, mm -hmm. uh, for me, that would not, that would not work. Um, for me personally, but that may not apply to uh, everybody. I really like to be on the innovative side. I always like to set up new things, sell new solutions and not do the repeat sale, which is a total different um, uh, animal and um, definitely also needs the professionals to, to do that correctly, but that's not really my thing. Um, I think what stands out most is that you uh, combine the ideas you hear in at the client, like where they want to go to, with the technology that you master, and um, yeah, get into yeah, better you use design thinking or not, but really get into a kind of um, a process where you incrementally come to a great idea, because that way you can avoid most RFI RFPs because if you are in a driver's seat together with your client, um, many times you have uh, shorter sales cycles in the end because there is already a trust factor. You are already cooperating with them. You are already adding value. And I think that's the key part. Um, and it's so much more fun uh, to do than answering uh, RFIs and RFPs. Yeah, I think answering RFIs and RFPs, and, and for those that don't know, that's a request for information or a request for proposal that a right. typically a large organization would put this out to the market and they would have a long list of, say, 20 vendors for the RFI. And so that means there's 20 teams of people investing time just to get onto a short list, which might come down to five or 10 even for an RFP, which is much more. So you've got five or 10 teams investing so much time and there is one winner, maybe. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's definitely that, you know, the, the odds are, are, are really not with you. So if you can get in on the innovation that, you know, sort of the proposition creation side, then, then definitely. Or now, yeah, I'm, I had one, uh, one colleague actually, yeah. uh, which, I learned a lot from when I was just, I was still really fresh into the sales side. And he said to me something which I remember still the, till today. Um, and also uh, the person who said it to me, he said, I know there are two winners in the sales cycle. The one who wins it and the one who steps out first, because that's the one who doesn't waste his time and energy and resources on something you cannot win and move on uh, to the next. So don't become what they call column further. Uh, in, in the US, um, but step out if you feel like, hey, you're not in control. And actually, um, I have a kind of a, a single sheet spreadsheet for that, where I can track and monitor my progress. And based upon that, I can make a qualified decision like how much chance do I actually have to win this or not? And based upon that, I can then still sometimes pursue because sometimes you really want to win something um, or get a foot in the door. But uh, for those, uh, let's say, strategic accounts, accept those strategic accounts. If the percentage is not good, step out. 
And I know what would be a, a reason to step out? Like what would be something on your, on your checklist that, that would be a runaway signal for one of the, uh, one of these deals? Yeah, there are a couple. Uh, first of all, of course, uh, the, the connection you have with the, the, the people that run that business, not so much the RFI, RFP, but um, the, who's the economic buyer in the part? Do you have a connection with that person? And is the vision of your company you represent or you as a person, is that aligned? Is there a match? Because if there isn't, um, you usually have a very low chance of, of winning. Um, and another one is... How are the KPIs or in a better way, the OKRs as they are uh, nowadays starting to get used more often? How well are they defined? Is it a little bit smart uh, and hopefully a lot smart, uh, but quite often uh, I, I see our, and still till today, you sometimes see RFIs where what they are asking for, yeah, then you really think like, come on guys, this is not how you're going to get a proper proposal from anybody who is, even at their best, trying to give you a good pro, uh, response to your proposal. Uh, I think those are the two key ones. Um, there are more, of course, but those are the two most important ones. Great. It, it's um, yeah, it's fascinating how this dance of of buying and procuring goes. And when I recommend to people, you know, like technologies or or, or advise people on technology selection. Oftentimes, I'm I'm coaching the executives of the buying party to not look at the technology, but look at look at the people who run and own and make the technology. Because I said, the technology will change by definition, but can you have a lasting relationship with these humans? Because if you can't, don't do it. It will just be pain and yeah. suffering. Well, that's one approach, which can definitely work long run. But there's one deficit to that approach, and that is. Um, if you set up your architecture such a way that if you know, the people cannot deliver the new functionality or something, but you can choose then the best technology and then plug it out and replace it by something new as soon as you find a company or technology that fits better. And so you have two major strategies uh, uh, to do it. Well, I don't think those strategies are mutually exclusive either way, either. And I think sure. we're going to get into a composable architecture discussion now based on that trigger. Um, yeah, so I, I think you certainly can't ignore the technology because it, it needs to fulfill your your process requirements and, you know, your, give you the capabilities it wants. Um, hopefully you have architected yourself so that it is somewhat flexible um, and, and you're not just complete lock-in. Honestly, some of the larger vendors are masters of lock-in. So, even even though it doesn't look like it, you're screwed. Yeah. You're 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 tied down. And then, um, if you have an uncomfortable feeling about the nature or the personality or the character of the people, so I think there's a lot of maybe another episode would be about how to buy tech. But anyways, um, yeah, Arno. yeah I do have some interesting views on that as well, based upon a training I've once had when I was in the, in the US. Um, from a mister called Mr. McLaughlin. And I think some people who are in the hardcore strategic selling, so the, the big project uh, selling, because it was a very expensive sales training, uh, but uh, they will definitely know me. Because there's not so only a sales cycle, there's also a buying cycle. And I have some very nice graphs how they map over each other. Basically, based upon that, you on the questions you get from your customer, you basically know where they are in their process. 
So that's the funny part, because just by them asking questions, they are actually telling you where they are. So if you pay very well attention, you know exactly how to address those questions as, as well. But that's not something some of the buyers would like to hear, but actually their questions basically betray where they are. Well, yeah, my, my, my preference is oftentimes to be more open. So if people are putting, oftentimes RFIs go out to, to learn. Basically they put it out there because they're just wanting to yeah. learn. And I think for me, it would be more honest or fair to say, we want to learn, <laughs> you know, instead yeah. of, instead of, you know, you know, you know, doing this other way, but anyhow, composable architecture. Um, yeah. I had the privilege of reading an article from you recently about composable architecture and banking. Um, can you share with us what is, uh, you know, composable architecture or composable banking and, and why does it matter? Yeah, I, I, I gladly do. Um, and the good news about it is actually, even though uh, I'm currently uh, mostly active on the banking side and partially on the, in the healthcare, uh, but actually the composable architecture as a concept is something uh, that not only could be used, but I think actually maybe should be used in every vertical, because basically what the concept does is it allows you to make use of um, the best offerings which are currently there in a way that you can plug out slash plug in, uh, have pull out or plug in um, functionality, which um, as it comes out, which is better than some of the current uh, components. Um, when it is loosely coupled, so you do need to put up uh, uh, like an orchestration, uh, both from a technical perspective and you need to put in the orchestration from an organizational uh, uh, perspective in order to, to manage that. Um, but if you do that, um, and it is also a continuous process, the whole, then it gives you the ultimate flexibility in using the latest in functionality, which can make a um, difference for you uh, competing against your competition. And at the same time, not getting strapped into locked in uh, and also not getting um, problems with the data, which goes uh, across all of those uh, processes, of course. Um, and that is something which uh, drives a lot of, uh, of benefits uh, for, uh, for the clients and particularly not only on the uh, uh, customer, uh, so the CI ratio, the cost income ratio, but also very much uh, from a delivery perspective so that you can much more quickly than before get new functionality to your users. Because in the end, if you do not have happy users, you will not have a business in the longer run. Now Composable architecture, um, can you just quickly compare and cut, because you, know, you go back, um, and oftentimes this is a dream for many organizations, whether it's called service orientation or uh, microservices as an architectural pattern, or um, if you go really generic sort of API economy, um, and interfaces is, related, is one of the attributes of the OpenEXO model, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, how is, is um, composable, business related to some of these other architectural themes? It's basically all of the things you just mentioned on steroids combined. Okay. That's the, that's the, that's the short version yeah. of it. So it makes use of, um, of all of that. So APIs are, a, a, I would say, let's say a mandatory part uh, in, in that. 
Um, and if you do that well, it can be done um, really, really efficient and really well. The key thing is that you as a company need to decide which parts of the um, of both the technology and also the process and the people around it uh, are going to be your people and which are from your SaaS or other uh, provider in that. Uh, because this, this is where you really make the impact at your clients. So you really need to be on top of that, in control of that. So of those key parts, you definitely need to know what you're doing and have the, the right people uh, to, to do that. That's very, very important. Yeah, when I look, when I look at um, some of these architectural patterns, th these are not for beginners. <laughs> You know, this is this is can, this can be a, a sophisticated and mature approach to to business and technology design. Um, what is an an example or best case anywhere in the world so people can orient on the power of composable architectures? Can, does something come to immediately to mind? Yeah, I mean, there are um, uh, one of the partners I work with uh, is is Mambu, for example. They deliver a core banking engine. Uh, which is literally composed, uh, made for composable banking. Um, it is built upon a, a framework from Corzoid, um, which is an event-driven orchestration uh, layer. And uh, maybe it's, it's good or not to also explain a little bit about the difference between event-driven versus uh, process-driven. Uh, so uh, most companies work process-driven and particularly all of, all of the ones that run on SAP or anything like that ERP kind of uh, solutions that they are basically always uh, process-driven. If you look at the um, amount of transactions that actually do not have a human interaction, there the event-driven part is much more important, whether that is in telephony switches like it was from the past. Um, and there is a reason why I mentioned this, but I'll come back to that later. Um, and compared to how you do business, because event-driven also needs a different kind of thinking. It, I always call it event thinking, because um, separate from your process and how you define, for example, your sales process, um, somebody is either a prospect or they are a customer or they have been a customer. The key is for most companies, how do you get those people that are currently a prospect, how do you make them into a, um, into a client, into a customer. So that is basically a state machine where one uh, group is a prospect and, it, and that's basically a state. And the other group, which is another state, which is they are already um, uh, a customer. And there are different, different steps in it. So if you really want to set up a proper architecture for something a little bit more complex, you will actually always have a combination of process-driven and event-driven. So that does make it a little bit more complex. But if you think about that, so if you have a proper CTO uh, to set it up for you, and, and that's also one of the things that I help my clients with, if you set that up in a, in a proper way and also as a continuous process so that you can keep adapting, uh, that is uh, how you keep your cost down and your flexibility uh, super high. So that's how you win in the market, uh, basically. Beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I will put a link to the to the article that you put together on this and also maybe to uh, Mambo uh, so people can just go and orient and, and, and check that out. Um, if, we're if we're turning the corner, um, increasing performance, efficiency, growth, exponential growth yeah. um, is coming back to where we met, which is on the uh, part of the open EXO community. 
and there was recently a global event called the Decade of the Exo, Decade of the Exponential Organization, and we were, of course, part of the the Netherlands chapter there. Um, yeah. And we've been having a number of conversations about how to really help organizations with their thinking and their mindset um, to take take advantage of these exponential trends. Can you share, uh, in your words, what is an exponential organization and, and why are you a part of OpenEXO? Um, yeah, why I'm part of it? Uh, it's, it's definitely something which uh, triggered me because actually when I first read about OpenEXO as an organization and the, the principles behind it, I really came to the conclusion like finally somebody put a label on it or a name on it because there were so many things which I already was doing to a certain extent or already uh, to the fullest extent uh, over for so many years. So for me, it came together like, ah, finally, everything so nice put together. Yeah, but what it is really about, it's about thinking differently, taking a very different angle to things um, and making a major leap. So it's not like, well, let's see if we can shave off 10% of the cost, which for many clients already would be nice. But this is really about how do we grow um, yeah, at more than 100% growth rate for the next uh, X years, etc. So it's really about taking, taking it exponentially. That's where the, where the X is in. And that's also where, uh, to, um, to also give one of the examples from, from, from the, uh, the composable banking part, one of their clients, N26, is a German bank. In just a couple of years, uh, they already have several million uh, clients. And if you look at their cost-income ratio, it's less than a third of a normal bank. I mean, that is really exponential uh, thinking, putting, uh, put in action. And that is, uh, yeah, I like it. It's um, very much aligned with the design thinking as a, as a principle of how to come up with new things. Um, yeah, so for everybody who likes to work on the innovation side, OpenEXO is a blessing, uh, basically. Cool. If, if we if we dive into the N26 case a bit, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it. I'm, I'm not really, but I can imagine. There are 11 attributes of an exponential organization which have been written in the book titled, surprise, surprise, Exponential Organizations. So um, you can get on, on Amazon or anywhere. And um, what attributes of an EXO do you know or do you think N26 might have um, pulled as a lever to achieve that performance? Well, actually quite a few because, for example, they don't have any uh, physical office except for the office where uh, they, they, they make their software. Um, and most of the people actually are also working uh, from home. So looking at the amount of people, no offices, so no physical investments. Uh, I mean... Yeah, they are on nearly everything. Uh, they 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 fit. They can be they can be mapped uh, basically. Uh, and that's not just and twenty six is a nice example because it's uh, also one of the examples from uh, from from Mambu. Uh, but there are also other ones like the end technology. What is happening with Mr. Ba? At least I hope it's, it still keeps happening after that. They now took him uh, as kind of a re-education program in China, which I hope uh, that he still continues with his uh, end technologies uh, part, because that's also very much in line uh, with the uh, OpenEXO uh, thought. It's very innovative thinking, and it will force um, generally quite a conservative market, which financial services is, to, uh, yeah, 
to rethink some of their uh, businesses because otherwise, otherwise they will be out of business actually. So I kind of like that. It really forces people to get more in, uh, more innovation going. Um, more innovation. And, and that seems to be a hot topic for everyone. So Arnout, um, well, well, before we wrap up, I would like to invite everyone, you can go to openexo.com. Um, this is part of that OpenEXO series. And there, there's a foundation course, which is free to take. It's a series of videos that explain everything. If you want to be certified, there's a small fee to pay for the certification costs and things like that. It was like $50 or something, something, something almost irrelevant. And the, the point of OpenEXO is to share the, the insights and the capabilities, not only for startups and you know unicorn companies, but also for established organizations and governance that, that want to sort of increase their the impact they make exponentially. So a huge yeah. invitation to uh, um, get involved in that. And if you're in the, the Benelux region, you know, Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, then reach out to Arna or myself because we're part of that yeah. growing yeah. circle, bandit, uh, bandits of, of pirates who are, uh, you know, sharing this message with the, uh, yeah. with the, with the market as, as widely and as loudly as we can. So. Yeah, I think it will actually help a lot of people because the, the, what I really liked about opening XO as well, it doesn't matter where you are a technical person or mere, a more a business uh, person, um, just by the MTP alone, so the mean transformational purpose, it makes you, it forces you to think about what am I adding to this world? And in itself, it is a useful part of, yeah, I would say the, grow, the growth paths of any individual uh, uh, in, in the professional world. So it's, it's definitely worthwhile and, doing it. And it's also, it can be, you know, confronting as well. So I'm, I'm curious what yours yeah. is, but my massive transformative purpose, the MTP, which is the, the pillar of, of the exponential thinking is mine is to, to um, create or co-create more joy and meaning in the workplace around the world through the disciplined pursuit of simplicity. And that continues to refine, meaning yes. it is the pursuit of joy and meaning because I leave happiness to the individuals. For me, I'm really focused on the workplace. And the method is this pursuit of simplicity. And, and that refinement of my mission has really come through conversations through people like you and, and you know the OpenEXO community. So what is your, last question, what is your MTP? And, and then we'll wrap up. <laughs> okay. Um, well, my MTP is also indeed about at the workplace, uh, but also a little bit uh, outside. My, my MTP is enable and grow new business models by using innovative technology and um, using that for the better. And then for the better of both the people, the end clients, and also the people who work for that, that company. Arnaud Batman, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Chris. Thank you for listening. Like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite player and download the Simplicity Kit from ebullient.com.